I'd like to invite you this evening to turn with me in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 40. We want to begin reading in God's Word at verse 12 under the heading of Our Father Created the World. Our Father Created the World. Beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span? and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him His counsel? Whom did He consult, and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice, and taught Him knowledge, and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like a fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. And he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot and he seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness." Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows upon them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. And then we want to turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 9. For those of you who are guests and visitors, it's the practice of our church 
Then in our evening worship, we read the Word of God, and then we also read the summary of the Word of God in one of our confessions. And this day, we're turning to Lord's Day 9 in the Heidelberg Catechism, the subject of God's creation, which is on page 210 in the Forms and Prayers book. The question, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, to which we respond, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth, and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father, for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust God so much that I do not doubt He will provide for whatever I need for body and soul and will turn to my good whatever adversity He sends upon me in this veil of tears. He is able to do this because He is Almighty God. He desires to do this because He is a faithful Father. Dear congregation, At the time that Isaiah is writing this book, there is an ongoing political and theological crisis. The political crisis. Assyria and Babylon have both exiled the northern nation of Israel and the southern nation of Judah. The theological crisis... How do they reconcile their exiled status with God's promises? In the first half of the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, the prophet tells them that the reason they are in exile is because that God is judging them for their sins. You have to look no farther than Isaiah chapter 1, and he makes that very plain. They are in exile. Exile is coming because of sins. But Christians have long noted that there is a difference in tone between the first 39 chapters of this book, which you could summarize in two words. Judgment, judgment. And chapter 40 through 66 which can be summarized in these two words. Comfort, comfort. Verse Chapter 40, verse 1, God says this, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That is that God has looked upon those in judgment. He has looked upon those who have suffered for their sins and He has been moved to compassion He has been moved to mercy for their sakes. He says to His prophet, His preacher, who is in Babylon, comfort My people. And what we may find interesting this evening is that the prophet in his first words of comfort points the people's eyes to the doctrine of creation. Do you find that interesting? These are hurting people in need of a comforting word. And he says, look, 
you know God created this world. If somebody you knew was inconsolable, hurting and suffering, would you point them to creation? I've never seen someone do that. But Isaiah actually does it quite a bit. He uses the doctrine of creation to assure the people of Israel of their special status in Isaiah 43, verse 1. He uses the doctrine of creation to assure them of their deliverance in Isaiah 43, verse 15. He uses the doctrine of creation to assure them of their redemption and their place in God's plan. And chapter 44 and 54. And that same idea is present here this evening in chapter 40. That if Yahweh created this world, then certainly He can fulfill His promises. If Yahweh created this world, then we can have certainty that He will fulfill His promises. Likewise, our Heidelberg Catechism's aim is to comfort us. We remember Lord's Day chapter 1. What is your comfort in life and in death? And here in Lord's Day 9, it tells us that there is comfort in the Creator God. That because of Christ our Lord, we're adopted into the family of God. And not just adopted into the family of any God, but the very God who created the heavens and the earth. If this is our Father, if the Creator of the whole universe is our Father, do we have any reason to fear? In fact, the Christian should not fear. Because the Creator God is our Father. Therefore, His promises are certain. The Creator God is our Father. Therefore, His promises are certain. I want to show you this in three movements here this evening. We should see from Isaiah 40 and as well Lord's Day 9 that our God created all, that our God maintains all, and that our God reigns over all. Our God created all, He maintains all, and our God reigns over all. If you look at Lord's Day 9, the catechism question is broken up into three different sections. It says first that He is our Creator, and then it will speak of Him upholding, and then it will speak of Him providing. But first we want to reflect on God as our Creator, that He has created all. There are certain questions that every single one of us in this room will have to have an answer to in this life. Every human being will ask questions such as this. Where did this world come from? Where did I come from? What's the purpose of being here on this earth? Where did everything come from? Put it maybe in a more contextualized way, The chair that you're sitting in right now, where did it come from? And to you who are smart, you might say, well, it comes from a tree, Pastor. Well, yes, I'm aware of that, but where did the tree come from? What I'm asking, the point of this question is, if you go back to the source, where did everything come from? 
What is the source of all things in this world? Now, science and philosophy, as good and important as science and philosophy are, cannot answer this question of where everything comes from. Christian, do you realize that? Sometimes where it's presented that our sciences are infallible, that they can make no error, but science has still not come to a conclusion to this question. What is the source of it all? And I'm not trying to, de- uh, to make science look bad. Science is good. God created science. And we will do science in heaven. But science still does not know where all things have come from. There are various theories. Some have suggested what we call materialism. That there has been matter, there has been atoms, there have been things that have existed throughout all of eternity, and that's all that exists is matter. Something physical. And then when we die, that's the end of it. This world purely exists by chance. Others on the eastern side of the world, some have suggested that matter, that things, that we are God itself. That we have eternally existed and God is in the very things and God is all around us. Others, and maybe more popular in our culture today, have suggested that this universe is in an eternal state of becoming. This is what we call evolution. But let us just be upfront this evening. The Scriptures teach that God created the heavens and the earth. You cannot believe the Bible and deny this truth. Genesis 1 and 2, Exodus 20, verse 1, Colossians 1, 16-17 are just a sampling of the biblical texts that assert God created everything. And the Catechism says it well. Who out of nothing created the heavens and the earth. Dear Christian, don't miss what this confession is telling you this evening. Before anything existed, before angels, before heaven, before this earth, before matter, before atoms, before oxygen, before things existed, God did. He existed. And He alone created. That's what Isaiah 40 is really pointing us to here. That there is nothing in this world that God did not create. If you look at verse 12, we see what we call a Hebraism. It's a turn of phrase used by the Israelites where we see waters and heavens, dust and mountains. What's being said here is really the greatest to the least, the biggest to the smallest, and everything in between has been created by God. And it asks a rhetorical question. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? It's asking the question, who was there before this world existed? Who witnessed this world being created? Was anything there? 
What's the answer? None but the Lord. Only God Himself was there. The only thing that existed before things existed was the will of God Himself. When this world was created, out of nothing but His own goodwill, God spoke. Where there was nothing, then there was something. Now, there is a great comfort here, although this may scare many people in our culture today. The great comfort is this, is that there is no limitation to what God can do. Think about how important this message is for people who are sitting in exile. The Jews at the time that Isaiah is preaching this word to them would have been in exile. They would have been displaced. There would have been idols on every corner, so to speak. They may have had family members that were lost in this warfare. And even though they're in exile, and God will say, due to their own sinfulness, He is comforting them with His power. That evil is not why this world was created. Evil will not win the war for this world The Creator of this world is Lord of this world. Congregation, don't we need this message in Michigan today? Christians are displaced in Grand Rapids. There are idols on every street corner, aren't there? The idols of sex, of power, of popularity on every street corner. And sometimes we can begin to lose heart thinking that Christ has lost the battle with culture, with this world. But here is the the comfort. If the creating God is for you and still in control of this world, do we need to fear If you look at verse 12, it would be helpful to read it side by side with verse 15. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Jump down with me to verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. I ask the question for you, if the oceans can rest in the hollow of God's hands, what consequence is one drop in the bucket? He says in verse 12, He weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Verse 15, the nations are accounted as dust on the scales. How influential is dust on the scale to the one who could weigh the mountains? What is it saying? The prophet is poetically putting it this way. That man cannot thwart the promises of God. God has not only created this world, but this world is marching towards His intended purposes. And nothing man can do 
there's nothing man can do to change this world's destiny. In fact, even if you burned all the woods in Lebanon, verse 16, and you offered all the animals on the altar, and you tried to change the will of God, it would not change. He is not dependent upon anything in creation. His plans are not thwarted. He is the Creator God who can do what He pleases. This is supposed to be a comfort for those whose will is in align with God. If God has created you and me, if He has created this whole world out of nothing, can He not also bring our problems to nothing? This is the comfort that Isaiah is driving the people of God's to, God toward. If you believe in a God that is so powerful to have created this world, then you must also believe in a God who is so powerful to deal with the problems of this world. The therefore of Isaiah 40 is, therefore, do not despair. The Creator God is in control And He loves His people. And His plans will come to pass in creation. Not mentioned in Lord's Day 9, speaking of the creation of the heavens and the earth, is that our God is not only the God of creation, but He is also the God of re-creation. That God has promised us that this world will be perfected one day. That Christ will come. That the dead in Christ will rise. That heaven, with a shout of an archangel, will descend and rest upon earth. And the dead in Christ and all who believed upon Him will reign with Christ forever. God has promised that this is the fruition of all who trust in Him. This is what creation is marching towards. He has promised to end evil in this world. He has promised to redeem this world. If He created the world, surely He can also redeem this world. God is the Creator of all. Our catechism goes on and says that God also is the one who upholds and rules all things by His eternal counsel and providence. That is, that our Father has not created this world and then forgotten about this world, but the Lord is still yet intimately involved and intimately caring for every single aspect of His creation, every second of every hour of every day. The prophet says this in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of His might. And because He is strong in power, not one is missing. That Hebrew word for one in the original language is ish, And throughout the Bible, that word one is applied to men and women and boys and girls, to animals and even inanimate objects in this world. 
These words commend to God's people not only His power, His strength, but also that He is near to the little things in creation. He is so powerful that He is the one who appoints the rising and the setting of the suns. But He is also so near that He knows every breath that goes into your lungs. He is so powerful that the oceans rest in His hands, that the mountains are on the scales, but He also knows when the sparrow falls. He is so powerful to create this world, but He also cares for every hair on your head. He knows you. The eyes of the world this morning were on Argentina winning the World Cup in Qatar. But the eyes of God are on you this evening. He cares for each and every one of His people. But of course, we are tempted to sin, tempted to create idols in our own hearts, And from verse 18, it seems clear that this was a temptation of the people of Israel in Babylonian captivity. Assyria and Babylon were full of idols, and all you have to do is think back to Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylonian captivity were called to bow down before the golden image and by implication renounce their God. There was temptation to follow the idols of their captors. But notice the folly of idols in verses in verse 19. A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it and casts for it silver chains. The folly of an idol is that it is made. It is created. The hands of men form them. And the prophet goes on in verse 20 and says this isn't just a rich person's sin, but even the poor are tempted to do it using their own hands or finding a skilled craftsman who can create an idol. Here's what's being contrasted for us this evening. God has created the whole world by the very breath of His power. By the word of His mouth, He's created the whole world. And here, there are people of His nation Israel bowing down to something they created with their own hands. The Lord says this is a height, the height of folly. Your God didn't create this world. It didn't even create itself. Your God doesn't maintain this world. It can't even maintain itself when it says in verse 20 uh, to set up an idol at the end of verse 20 that will not move. The very words there is that it won't totter. That it won't fall over. If you jump over to uh, chapter 41, verse 7, it says that a craftsman strengthens the goldsmith 
who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. This is speaking of idols. And listen to this. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. They have to nail their God to the floor so it doesn't fall over and break. Here's the point that the author is driving you towards. If these gods can't care for themselves, why do you think they can care for you? If it can't help itself from falling over, will it be able to help us in our lives? Now in North America, many of us are not tempted to bow down to a golden image, but idolatry is still alive and well. John Calvin famously said, our hearts are an idol factory. We all want to worship something. And we can make an idol out of anything. Idolatry is when we put anything alongside of or in the place of God. That is what we trust something else other than God to maintain and sustain us. And so money can become an idol. Beauty, success, sports, fill in the blank. But here's the question you need to be asking yourself and what you trust. Can, if, if, here's what you need to be asking. If what you trust in cannot maintain itself, how can it care for you too? So your money in the bank, can it save you from death? Then how can it care for you? Young people here this evening, if you're trusting in your beauty, i got bad news for you. It doesn't take long before this part starts growing and the wrinkles start coming. If you're trusting in your car, well, you live in Michigan, so that's a bad idea. There's a lot of salt on the roads these days. If you trust if you're trusting in your sports teams, well, you live in Michigan, so that's a bad idea. The point of God is this in Isaiah chapter 40. You need something outside of yourself. You need something that is not the product of human hands that you can trust in. Because everything in this world is only here temporarily. Our marriages are for this world. Our children are only ours on loan. Again, we talked about money, beauty, success. Those things are only temporary. It's only God who is eternal. And He upholds and sustains this world. You can trust in Him. That's what Isaiah is saying in verse 21. If God created the world, He can be trusted. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What is he saying here? He's saying if by faith God has revealed to you everything that you need to know, why don't you trust Him? While science and philosophy speculate, about the creation of this world, you have the gift of knowing the origin of all things. 
while science and philosophy speculate, you this evening have the gift of knowing the origin of all things. God has told you how this world came about, why you are here, how you were created. He told you about the fall, the presence of evil in this world. He told you about the cross, His his answer to the problem of evil. He's told you about Christ to come. He's told you about eternity in heaven. He has not withheld anything from you. You can trust this God. And this is a gift, congregation. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you just quickly to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 this evening. I just want to show you one thing. Hebrews 11, of course, is the by faith chapter showing us uh, the heritage of believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits that we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 1, says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their condemnation. And listen to verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Here the author of Hebrews is very clearly stating that to know the origin of the world is a gift of faith. He didn't have to tell you how this world was made. But God in His good pleasure revealed that He is the originator. He is the maintainer. He is the ruler of all. And therefore, to believe in Him is to be assured of safety in this world. And you can know that no matter what befalls you in this life, that the present and the future are secure in the hands of God. I feel like we need to hear this. You and your family are secure in God's hands. No matter what happens. It's wise here to pause and speak on God's fatherhood. We mentioned it briefly last week. God has been revealed in the Bible as the Father Jesus Christ. But here our catechism says, look how beautifully it puts it in the middle of our answer there. He's no longer just Christ's Father, but He is my God and Father for the sake of Christ, His Son. Between Lord's Days 8 and 9, something changes. It bespeaks of our adoption into the family of God. He is the Father of Christ. But if we are adopted into the family of God, He is my Father too. This means we can go to the Father like any child goes to their Father. We can bring to God our wants. We can bring to our petitions. We can bring to Him our struggles. We can bring to Him our triumphs. But we can go home and lay our head on the pillow knowing that our Father will take care of His children. Here's Isaiah's word 
to his people in, in captivity. God is your father. The creator God is your father. And he cares for you. Finally, we need to see that God reigns over all. Not only is he our creator, not only is he our sustainer, but he is also our provider, and he provides for every one of our needs as the one who reigns over this whole universe. I want to say something that may be controversial in some places, but I trust not so with you this evening. God is king over this whole world. God is king over this whole world. The prophet puts it very poetically in verses 22 through 24 where it says this. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What is he saying? He's saying God is king. Nebuchadnezzar, although the king of Babylon is here today and gone tomorrow. He doesn't have unlimited authority. The king of Persia, although strong and glorious, does not have unlimited strength. Listen to God as He says in verse 22, I sit enthroned upon the earth. Jesus is not only king of this church, but He's the king of the world. So do not despair. We still need this message. I've spoken to you folks over these last few months. I know that the kingdom of darkness is pressing down on you. I know that idolatry in this world tempts us. I know that we can forget that Jesus too is King. But He is King. Allow me to be very bold this evening. Joe Biden is not King. And I don't want to hear any Republicans saying amen tonight. Because I would have said it about Trump as well. Joe Biden is not king. Gretchen Whitmer is not king. I don't know who the mayor of Grand Rapids is, but they're not king either. Jesus Christ is king. He rules over this creation. He rules over the United States. He rules over Michigan. He rules over Grand Rapids. He rules over your homes. And whatever comes to pass comes from His fatherly hand. And what does come to pass comes from Him. And it's moving towards His purposes in Himself. Christian, remember these words. I can't put it better than this. That though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let the heaven rings. God reigns. Let the earth be glad.
Christ is King. He sits enthroned upon the earth. Christians need not fear. The prophet goes on and says in verse 28, that God, this God, this Christ is mighty. We do not need to fear because He is Almighty God. This, of course, is the teaching of Scripture. Verse 28, He is everlasting God. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't get weary. Perfect in knowledge and understanding. He is able to do whatever He wants. But what is so, so touching is in verse 29-31, through 31, God is Almighty God. He is able to do what He wants. But what He wants to do is help His people. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. God wants to help his people. Is there anyone who is faint here this evening? Anyone weak with the trials of life? Weak with laboring in the kingdom of darkness? Weak as they struggle with sin? Do not think because you are young you will be strong forever. Even youths will faint. Young men shall fall exhausted. Those who trust in their own strength, the strength of their youth, will be defeated. But let us be reminded that God is almighty and helps those who trust in Him. And even though our strength is weak, and we feel that we are made low, and we are greatly humbled, if we trust in God, He stretches out His hand to all who call upon Him for help. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, His power is actually made known in our weakness that those who come to God in humble dependence, though weak in themselves, who trust in Him, shall have, the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up on wings like eagles. That is, they shall be given a new and a vigorous life. And they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Obviously, the prophet here in verse 31 is not speaking of a human power. I don't know if you've ever tried running, but it's awful. And you go weary pretty quickly. It's speaking of a supernatural strength that comes from God. A supernatural strength to endure life's trials when we confess that we need Him. And we trust in His strength. So let's conclude this evening. If you're a Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God. Not one of those lowly gods that can't even stop itself from toppling over. But you've been adopted into the family of a creating God. He wants you to come. To trust Him. To lean upon Him for strength. And He is able to meet all of your needs because He is Almighty God but He desires to meet all of your needs. He wants to meet all of your needs because you are His child. 
a son and a daughter through Christ our Lord. He desires to do it because he is a faithful father. Are you a child of God this evening? Is God your father? If not, come through Jesus Christ. Have a seat at the table and welcome to the family. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks this evening that you are Almighty God. That you have created this world. And because you have created this world, there is nothing that you can't do within this world. Teach us, Lord, not to trust in idols. Idols that may be physical before our eyes, but also the idols in our hearts. Teach us to forsake them and to not have any hope in them, but to turn to you who is almighty. And we thank you, Lord, that you are our Father in Christ and that just like our earthly fathers desire to give us good gifts and to have our needs provided for, Lord, you are the same. And so we give you thanks for that. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.